Hey, it's Lauren Chuljan. And as I write this episode, we are only a few weeks away from the New Hampshire primary, which means it's also about the time when candidates are starting to get a little desperate. There's only so many more chances to close the deal with those powerful first-in-the-nation voters. And there's this thing that every candidate hopes for, a thing that could help win over some undecided voters or give a candidate some last-minute attention, an endorsement from a New Hampshire newspaper. For years and years, it was not uncommon to see uh, voters carrying an editorial cut out of uh, the Monitor and I presume other papers uh, to the polls with them. Ralph Jimenez is a longtime editor at the Concord Monitor. It's a daily newspaper out of New Hampshire's capital city with a pretty strong reputation. And for decades, the editorial board at the Monitor, so a group of top managers separate from the newsroom, they've been entrusted with this big responsibility. They sit down with the candidates one by one and basically try to get them off their stump speech. They ask tough questions that maybe the candidates don't hear on the campaign trail about issues that affect New Hampshire voters. And at the end of all these conversations, the board gets back together and they fight over who they think would be the best president. And then they print a piece in the paper that explains who they think New Hampshire voters should go for. Other papers would do this, too. Best thing that can happen is to walk into a coffee shop and hear people arguing over the editorial or over the endorsement. Presidential candidates want as much exposure as they can get in New Hampshire. And here they could get the stamp of approval from the editors of a trusted newspaper. And sometimes that leads candidates to get competitive, like in 2008. There were five members of the editorial board and we were split between these two candidates. And the campaign knew it. Felice Bellman was the top editor at the Monitor then. 2008 was an open race, so lots of candidates on both sides. And the Republican choice was going to be easy. The board knew they were going to endorse John McCain. But on the Democratic side, they were already torn between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And that led to one crazy week in the Concord Monitor newsroom. On the Monday, I believe, of that week, Hillary Clinton um, came and sat for a long editorial board interview And then the next day, Bill Clinton, who happened to be in the state campaigning for her, came just to make the case for his wife, and he sat with us for two full hours. That was like a Tuesday. Later that week, it was Barack Obama's turn. He comes in, sits before the board, does the interview. But apparently, as he was getting ready to leave, an editor let it slip that the Clinton campaign had given them more time. When I got back to my desk after that Obama interview, my phone was ringing. It was Barack Obama himself. Saturday morning of that week, I was awoken. My landline phone was ringing, and um, it was Hillary Clinton on the other end. She woke me up. The, the farther you get away from that year, that was 2008, the crazier it seemed. But in the moment, it seemed completely like what would go on. Well, I'm here. He's not. Okay, well, and I'm tell who I'm This is Stranglehold, a podcast about the power and people behind the New Hampshire primary. And I got to say, this is an episode everyone on the Stranglehold team has been thinking about for a long time. Because this story is a story about us, about the New Hampshire media. We can't dig into the primary without picking apart one of the most essential pieces of this powerful institution. And as we held up the mirror to ourselves and our colleagues, we started to really see just how much the media has helped maintain the so-called stranglehold and how we've all benefited in the process. You end up being part of the (laughs) first in the nation industrial complex. The, The notion of like exclusive access by local press 
is definitely like not what it was. I was a biased reporter. I will own that proudly. I was a biased reporter. So we've made the case to you many, many times over that New Hampshire thinks it's special, that the first in the nation primary gives us this extra relevance or power and maybe a little bit of ego that doesn't usually come along with living in a small state. It's why, for decades, young green reporters would move here, even if they weren't super jazzed about the prospect at first. I don't, you know, I don't know. I just thought that I was like hot shit and the, oh, am I allowed to swear? Yeah, of course you are. It's stranglehold. Okay. Um, Yes, that is Sarah Koenig. And in case you don't recognize her voice or her name, maybe this will ring a bell. For the last year, I've spent every working day trying to figure out where a high school kid was. So, yeah, before she was host of the mega hit podcast Serial, before she was a producer at This American Life, Sarah Koenig was looking for a job at a big city newspaper. (laughs) Summarily got rejected by paper after paper after paper. It was the 90s, and she tried to get a gig at the Baltimore Sun. And he said, we can't hire you yet. You don't have enough, like, daily experience. But, like, here's a list of really good smaller papers that you should apply to. And I think the monitor was on there. So I was like, okay. And I did exactly what he told me to do. And the monitor was interested. And I was just like, oh, New Hampshire. You know, I thought I was fancy and so I was like this little paper is like beneath me or something. I mean I was such an idiot then and, and it- then she thought more about it and something clicked oh right first in the nation primary I've got one thing in mind to earn every vote I possibly can and to win those most important primary of New Hampshire was going to be a big election year. It was a totally open race. President Bill Clinton was finishing his second term. There was, of course, an impeachment trial. So while local newspaper jobs would usually mean a lot of reporting on town hall meetings, car accidents, maybe a fire or five, in an election year, New Hampshire reporters get to cover the potential leader of the free world. Alec McGillis is now an award-winning reporter at ProPublica. But in the late 90s, he was another young reporter looking for a job at The Monitor. How much of the thought process was, well, it would be really great to cover a primary? Or were you just kind of looking for a job anywhere you could get it? No, I would say it was definitely probably a good sort of third of the of the calculus in going up there. At the time, local coverage was often the first and only source of information for New Hampshire voters. Think about it. This is 2000. That year and for decades before, voters weren't scrolling Twitter or reading national papers online for campaign coverage. The Concord Monitor had a really loyal readership. So local editors at the Monitor and elsewhere, they really saw themselves as an integral piece of the primary complex. They really did regard themselves as kind of um, as somehow guardians of of the process and and guardians of the privilege. I don't think I needed to be told, like, this is important. (laughs) Like, here's our special role. Like, it was so drummed into you constantly. It was up to New Hampshire reporters to inform the the first-in-the-nation voters. Those voters relied on the local papers to get basic information on the candidates. They could read side-by-side comparisons on issues, features on what candidates did before they wanted to be president. And there were, of course, reports from local town halls and house parties. For weeks, it was just all day, every day, you were out on, you were at events and events and events and events and just (laughs) driving all over the place and... 
talking to the candidate, talking to their campaign. I mean, it was just, it's a frenzy. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, you felt super important. So the connection between the local press and the voters, it also helped build another important relationship, the one between the local press and the candidates. And the currency that relationship provided was incredible access. How are you? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You'd have these campaign events where you'd have the entire national press corps there, this, that, that huge pack coming in from out of town, and they would be clamoring to get to talk to, to the candidate. And you, you as the young local reporter, would be sort of secreted away, um, waiting for your half hour alone with him, um, because you were you were entitled to a, a level of access that much more experienced national reporters were not. Because in that period, your readers or your viewers mattered more to the campaign than than whoever was reading the Washington Post. <laughs> I would bet that every former New Hampshire political reporter has some sort of story like this. A moment where you, the New Hampshire reporter, were chosen ahead of or instead of national reporters. You mattered more. Your news outlet mattered more. Because your readers, the New Hampshire voters, mattered more. The point of the interview was to give readers a sense of who this candidate was. But it was also pretty cool for the reporter. The stories that would come from those interviews, they could influence the campaign, make national news, and they'd definitely help you get your next job. I had I had clips about George Bush in my backyard, you know what I mean, who had just been elected president of the United States. So, like, I mean, I feel like the, the primary ended and I sent out my resume. But... This is the part in the story of the media and the primary where things begin to get a little sticky. You end up verging into a little bit just being part of the kind of <laughs> first in the nation industrial complex. And you've got to kind of avoid that. There were, there were definitely moments where I could feel even the monitor, which I love. I love the monitor so much. But it was I could, you could feel us sort of becoming a little bit part of a whole kind of shtick. Let me give you a quick example. Sarah remembers a story she did at the Monitor about Michigan, about how they were trying to kick New Hampshire out of the first in the nation spot. So you may remember this. Secretary of State Bill Gardner was involved, the so-called guardian of the primary for the last four decades. And Sarah wrote a story about him and how he was trying to keep Michigan from stealing the primary. I remember sort of my stance was like, go Bill Gardner. You know what I mean? Like, he's our guy. I'm sure I brought up, I, I, in the stories, I was, like, expressing Michigan's position. But I wasn't really interrogating ours. Sometimes reporting on the primary can turn into defending the primary. At the Democratic Convention, will you support New Hampshire's continued first in the nation? You guys are really good at bribery, man. I tell you what. (laughs) Yes, this is the quid pro quo that I'm asking you for right now. I I don't have any crow or quid or pro. That's coming up after the break.
Hey, it's Lauren, and this is Stranglehold. We've spent a lot of time this episode talking about the Concord Monitor and their important role as an intermediary between voters and candidates. But for as long as we've had the primary, over 100 years now, there's been a lot of local coverage of it. For example, in 2000, when Sarah Koenig and Alec McGillis were on the beat, the Monitor wasn't the only game in town. If you think about that uh, time period, when candidates came to a given region of the state, there would be... You know, the statewide news outlets, the union leader, um, to some degree, NHPR, WMUR. You'd also have local papers, regional papers, uh, papers like Foster's. This is my colleague Josh Rogers. He's been covering politics in New Hampshire for nearly two decades. And when he started out, New Hampshire, like many other states back then, was full of local newsrooms who covered every inch of the First of the Nation primary. You would get some people who could would cover minutia of campaigns, uh, staffing changes, like, you know, who was endorsing who. You'd have people who would be writing something that, you know, might have more sweep. Different papers, uh, you know, cover things with different intensity. But, I mean, the bottom line is there was more. There's a joke that gets told around here that politics is like our state sport. It's part of our culture. The New Hampshire primary is seen as this, like, good thing, a public service that we provide for the rest of the country. And somewhere along the line, New Hampshire journalists started seeing themselves as participants in that thing instead of neutral observers. And that can shape reporting on the primary in subtle and not-so-subtle ways, like reporting that perhaps in hindsight should have been more circumspect. Remember Sarah Koenig's example? I remember sort of my stance was like, go Bill Gardner. You know what I mean? Like, he's our guy. We've done boostery-sounding stories here at NHPR, like this one from 2016, celebrating the importance of the, quote, humble house party. Why is it that in an era of big data, big money politics, candidates still see value in these smaller, more informal gatherings? You do, in New Hampshire, still pick up votes. We also did a profile of Gardner that year that barely questioned him. But then there's this. When it came to protecting the presidential primary... I was a biased reporter. I will own that proudly. I was a biased reporter. Scott Spradling was WMUR's political director for 12 years. And WMUR, or Channel 9, is New Hampshire's only statewide television news station. If John McCain's plan is one step at a time... Full disclosure, I interned and freelanced there in college. Now, New Hampshire voters can get Boston stations, too. But when it comes to the primary, WMUR is king. Mitt Romney introduced himself to Concord retirees by talking... They report from the campaign trail. They air lots of interviews with candidates. They often invite voters to join them for those conversations. And they co-host national debates. So they do a lot. Good morning and welcome to Close Up New Hampshire. For the next two... And when Scott Spradling started at WMUR, he says at first... I tried to just sort of be a filter for what I was hearing and then like reflected back so that people could make up their own minds. And then you fell in love. Well, yeah. I mean, I fell in love with the primary (laughs) because, my gosh, she's such a lovely mistress. But this deep love for the primary would often pop up in his coverage. He gave me one example. Before the 2000 election, he was assigned to go down to Delaware. You remember Delaware. They wanted an early primary, too. And the guardians of the New Hampshire primary told candidates, if you campaign in Delaware, you will feel the wrath of the New Hampshire voter. And how were the voters going to find out? Scott's prattling. The point was, my news director sent me five, six hours south to go camp out in Delaware and wait for a gotcha moment. The whole thing was supposed to be catch the guy in the act, show the people of New Hampshire that he's running around with somebody else. 
Turns out, didn't work out. He didn't get the story. But that's not the point. The point is, for Scott Spradling, protecting the New Hampshire primary was part of the gig. And he says that's true of WMUR political directors through today. 100 years after ballots were cast in New Hampshire's first presidential primary, the tradition is under fire again. Despite recognition You can hear it in the station's 2016 special commemorating the 100th anniversary of the primary. In a country plagued by voter apathy, New Hampshire is tirelessly engaged and well aware of the responsibility. You can hear it peppered throughout regular news coverage. So there's no perfect system, obviously, right. other than the first in the nation primary, I should say. But uh, And in interviews with candidates. At the Democratic Convention, will you support New Hampshire's continued first in the nation? You guys status? are really good at bribery, man. I tell you what. <laughs> yes, this is the quid pro quo that I'm asking you for right now. I I don't have any crow, quit or pro with you. Remember, the New Hampshire primary is a political institution, protected and upheld by powerful people who stand to benefit from its survival. And so reporting that doesn't interrogate that institution, well, it seems to apply a different standard to the primary than to other important political forces. But Scott says when it comes to the primary, that's the way it should be. Why is it okay to not be objective about the fact that New Hampshire's first? Well, I guess because in this particular argument, I would say respectfully that the results speak for themselves. I think that New Hampshire, for a number of unique reasons, small makes it affordable. It's Scott's uh, argument about why it's okay to be biased about being first. It's one you've heard throughout this podcast. Scott says New Hampshire is small, accessible, gives long shot candidates a chance. He says New Hampshire makes better presidents. Now, some of those things are facts. New Hampshire is small. It is easy to get around here. Candidates have campaigned in New Hampshire on a shoestring budget. But whether our voters make better presidents, whether we deserve to be first, those are opinions. No one who works at WMUR now would sit for an interview with us. But the station's news director, Alicia McDevitt, sent us a statement. And it reads... Quote, the first in the nation primary is a big story because it's a New Hampshire tradition. These are lines taken out of our broader reporting of the New Hampshire primary. WMUR does not take positions. We obviously cover those who support the New Hampshire primary and their reasons for doing so. But that does not mean we take an editorial position, end quote. Part of what we're trying to do here now with Stranglehold is take a step back and put all of this, every piece of the primary, under the microscope to find out what's behind the assumptions, ask the questions that make people here uncomfortable. And some people certainly are not pleased with that tact, including local journalists like Joe McQuaid, editor-at-large of the New Hampshire Union Leader, the only statewide newspaper that we've got. Here he is recently on C-SPAN. The, the local public radio station in New Hampshire um, did a podcast this year called Stranglehold. McQuaid wouldn't do an interview with us for this episode. And it's a, a series ostensibly, well, it's about the, the New Hampshire presidential primary, but it's very negative about the primary. And I'm wondering, all the people in New Hampshire who support and listen to that station, what are they getting for their buck? I listened to two episodes and stopped listening because I was no longer interested. Now, I would argue what we are doing is not negative, but I understand why my colleagues would be mad or at least baffled. The primary has made New Hampshire's local media important. 
all local media, us too. It's boosted careers, helped raise money. In the 2016 election, WMUR sold $28 million in primary-related ads. We dangle the primary when we're recruiting reporters to our station. We use it as messaging during fund drives. And when the election rolls around, we're in demand. In the 2012 election, my colleague Josh Rogers made nearly $20,000 filing extra stories on the primary for National Public Radio. And Josh has got just as many stories of insane access to candidates as anybody else does. You know, in 2004, you know, the Howard Dean campaign, like, rented a sports bar in Manchester and invited reporters to, you know, kind of hang out. You know, I shot pool with Howard Dean. Like, what candidate would think that that was a good use of their time? I mean, it probably wasn't a good use of his time then, but the idea that it would be considered a good use of your time now, you know, seems kind of preposterous. I mean, you can... But now, Josh has noticed a change. The access he and other local reporters used to enjoy, it's just not the same. When I first started, like, it was not uncommon for, like, people who were, like, press secretaries for people to actually give comments and interviews that were, like, kind of useful, potentially. And now, like, you know, that doesn't really exist anymore. Why? You already know the answer. The Internet, social media, the way we all consume news now, the high thresholds being set to get on the debate stage. They don't need to build the kind of relationship that they had historically with local media. And while getting an endorsement from a paper is something that any any campaign would want, I think they also know that the record reflects that, you know, those things may not make a hell of a lot of difference. I actually... Wouldn't be surprised if this is the last real New Hampshire primary, but uh, that's a debate for another day, I guess. The Concord Monitor used to be a place candidates looked to for that coveted endorsement, a place where multiple reporters would fight over who got to be assigned to which candidate. But now their campaign coverage is either purchased from a national wire service or reported by one part-time freelance writer who also files for other outlets. As long as I can remember, reporters angled to get a good candidate because they would follow them around for days at a time. You were at events and events and events. Report on their every movement. Driving all over the place and talking to the candidate, talking to their... And uh, now there are three, four, five times more candidates than reporters. Editor Ralph Jimenez says that the Monitor doesn't even have enough people to form a proper editorial board. And that's why this year, for the first time in decades, they're not going to bother endorsing a candidate. The staff is so reduced that on any given day, we couldn't get four or five people together, even for a a top-tier candidate. And if you can't do all of them, or most of them at least, uh, it's not fair to just do a few and write about them. So we uh, were forced economically uh, to take, pretty much take ourselves out of the game for endorsement purposes. I guess that, like, obviously that you need the candidates to show up for the primary to be important. You need indications that voters take it seriously for it to be, like, facially credible. You arguably no longer really need the local media telling that story to make a difference. Even if the press corps isn't what it used to be, and the candidates don't care as much about local reporters, as long as we're first, 
there will still be something to cover. This episode was produced by Taylor Quimby and me, Lauren Julgen, with help from senior political reporter Josh Rogers. Stranglehold is edited by NHPR's director of content, Maureen McMurray, and news director, Dan Barrick. Additional editing help for this episode came from Erica Janik and Casey McDermott, and Jack Rodolico is Stranglehold's senior producer. Rebecca Lavoie is NHPR's digital director, and Sarah Plord made our beautifully aggressive podcast graphics. Jason Moon and Lucas Anderson made the original music for this podcast, additional music for this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. And additional thanks to Carl Cameron, Karen Stranglehold is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Children who helped us name this podcast. 